Today, I want to look at the subject of prayer because looking and running to God as a refuge, fleeing to him as your strength is just Christian jargon and an empty platitude unless you understand the priority and the privilege of prayer. And so with that in mind, let's ask God for his help this morning. Our Father and our God, we're thankful that the lyrics we just sang are true. Behold him there, the risen lamb. He's coming, Lord, he's coming back. And Lord, even that we think through and we often just sing things that we don't even really consider that we don't despair because of our sin because you've paid it all and you've risen from the dead, but we're also singing that you're coming back for us. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. What an amazing truth that we just sang. Lord, we pray that even as we look at the subject of prayer today, would you make us a praying people? A people that long to seek the face of God. Lord, we ask that your spirit would fill us now. We're thankful that you've revealed yourself in the pages of scripture and that it's living and active, as Jason just said, sharper than any two-edged sword. We don't look at a dead book. We look to the revelation of reality given to us by God, which is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago, just as powerful today as it was in the Great Awakening. And just as amazing now as it was when it caused the hymn writers to write amazing grace. And so, Lord, we thank you for this truth. We pray that you would be with us as you promised to do so. Praise in your name. Amen. The year is 1812. Napoleon is the French emperor, and he had conquered nearly all of Europe. But he had one prized piece of land left unconquered. Napoleon wanted Russia. And so Napoleon led his Grande Armée, the largest army in the history of Europe, 680,000 men. And he led them on a full-scale invasion of Russia. During the opening months of the invasion, Napoleon was forced to contend with a Russian army that never really battled them head-on. They were in perpetual retreat. So Napoleon, with his massive army, would chase the Russians further and further and further back into Russian territory. But once he arrived in Moscow, he expected to be met there with more food and supplies and ammunition. But what he found is that instead of arriving at a well-stocked city, Napoleon arrived at an empty city because General Michael Kutsulyov had burned all of their provisions or taken them with him. And so Napoleon arrives in a city facing the onset of a Russian winter and begins to think. I've never been in a Russian winter, but I have seen Rocky IV, so I understand a little bit. <laughs> and after waiting months and months and months for a Russian surrender that never came, Napoleon's army began to starve to death. And they, ironically, go back the exact same way they had come. And they begin to retreat away from Russia, back into their territory. And then all of a sudden, the, the Russian army becomes very merciless and aggressive. And as Napoleon's army begins to retreat, the Russians begin to just pick them off. And they're starved and they're decimated at this point. And once they reach the Berezina River in November, they find that its route is blocked. And from there, the retreat becomes a total massacre. Napoleon had arrived in Russia with 680,000 men. And two months later, 520,000 of those men are dead. Not because of opposing military greatness, not because of opposing military strength or strategy, but because Napoleon was so set on advancing and advancing and advancing and advancing that he had forgotten that which is fundamental. He didn't think about their need for nourishment. He didn't think about their need for sustenance. And without which, his army, 500,000 of them, withered 
and died. You know, as a church, we can talk a lot about the future. Next week, we're going to celebrate kind of just what God has done in the last few years as a church and where we're going. But even when we talk about where we're going, we need to understand something that when we talk about the future, hey, we want to do this and that. We got kids programs coming. We're starting up youth group. Hey, we got a land search committee. We got a building committee. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We have to understand that unless you start and build upon that which is fundamental, your soul, my soul, our souls will starve. Because you can think about advancing, but if you forget nourishment, you're going to die. And we as a church will not be blessed by God. Spiritually speaking, our souls are prone to starvation if we neglect the very important reality of prayer. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Last week, we talked about how God is our refuge and our strength. But I remember just even when I was thinking with my dad, when I was a kid, we used to go down his message and I used to write in the corners for him because we we would talk back and forth. What does this even mean? I mean, that there's so many things that are Christian speak, Christian jargon, Christian mumbo jumbo. We say, God, be with this person. I even just said it. And then you have to remember, what the heck does that even mean? God promises that he's with people. He's omnipresent. We just say Christian things. And over time, the following generation just go, we don't even know what we're saying. And so we say God is our refuge, but practically speaking, prayer is that which flings open the gate of the refuge that is God. We say God is our strength, but you will never experience that strength if you are a foreigner to prayer. How can we have peace by running to God as a refuge? What does that even mean today? We're going to look at the other side of that coin. We must pray. Do you want a peace that surpasses all understanding? Do you want God to wipe away your worries? Do you want the antidote to anxiety? Then you must pray. Today, I want to look at just a few things. Why do we pray? How do we pray? When do we pray? And then a bunch of things I just also want to say, okay? (laughs) It's got two false endings, just a heads up. So number one, if you're taking notes, why do we pray? Why do we pray? Number one, why do we pray in this regard? Prayer is a command. And I want you to look at this in Matthew 6 for a moment. Turn to Matthew 6. Prayer is a command. Prayer is not an optional suggestion. It is an expression of total dependence upon God. Jesus assumes that we pray. In Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, he says, when you pray, not you should pray or if you pray. He says, when you pray, because it is a foregone conclusion that the children of God approach their God in prayer. You want to take a spiritual litmus test? You want to take your spiritual temperature? How much do you pray and how big of a priority is it in your life? If you're a stranger to prayer, you are largely a stranger to God. Prayer is a duty. In it, we exalt the glory of God. We express our dependence upon God and we plead for God that his kingdom would come and his will would be done in our life. Maybe you think of prayer and you think of the super spiritual person, but prayer is not for pastors or missionaries or just merely the super saint soccer moms or for your grandmother. Prayer, listen, is for the everyday child of God. So first of all, prayer is a command. Secondly, under why do we pray? Prayer is a privilege. I want to focus here more than focusing on the duty of prayer because prayer is the highest privilege of the child of God. Stars do not pray, nor can they. Mountains cannot pray. Oceans cannot pray. Grizzly bears cannot pray. Why? Because they do not possess a God-like deposit. They are not made in the image of God but you can pray. You can pray. You know why? Because you are made in the image of God and one individual in here is worth more than all of the oceans, all of the stars, all of the trees, all of the grizzly bears in the world combined because they are made with a God-like deposit. And prayer is not your birthright. It is your spiritual birthright because you have been brought into the family of God. Privileges are typically granted, not earned. And the privilege of praying is something that has been extended to you because Jesus Christ has purchased for God through his blood a people 
that can call God Father. You want to know what it costs for you to be able to say, Dear Heavenly Father? The slaughter of the perfect, spotless, sinless, blameless Lamb of God. Sadly, people neglect this privilege. People enter lotteries to meet their favorite celebrity. They put themselves on the wait list to attend the masters. They spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to get distant seats to see their favorite artists or to watch their favorite sporting events. But I just want to be honest and make a general statement. The average American professing Christian man spends more time watching football on a single Sunday than they do in prayer for an entire year combined. because it's a privilege that we've become numb to. First John 1 John 1.12 says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Maybe you're wondering, why do we pray if God is sovereign? Well, first of all, we need to remember, prayer is a duty. It's something you need to obey. We ought to pray. But secondly, we, we should want to pray because prayer is a privilege. This is... The greatest truth in the world, J.A. Packer says, you can sum up all of New Testament religion in three words, God is Father. That's a tremendous privilege. But third, we pray because prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. It says in James 5.17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I want to look at the life of Elijah because in about a month, we're going to open up the book of Jonah and we're going to be in the book of Jonah for a couple months. Why Jonah? Because in the book of Jonah, God reveals his heart to save sinners. There's a lot more than a man and a fish. We're going to look at the story, but Jonah comes against the backdrop of the death of Elijah. And Elijah, it says in James 5.17, was a man with a nature like ours. And yet it says that he prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and the sky began to rain. Moses lacked fluidity of speech. He could not talk well. He says, who am I to go to Pharaoh? And yet Moses prayed and God split the Red Sea open. Hezekiah was a sinful, imperfect man. He falls down before the throne and God sends one angel we looked at last week and wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. Jonah prays in the belly of the great fish and the fish spat him up on dry land. David prayed, God delivered him. Daniel prayed in the lion's den and it says, and God shut the lion's mouth. We lose sight of just... Felt bored Christianity. God shut the lion's mouth. Joshua prayed. Timid man, I think, naturally. You know why? Because the first thing they say is be strong and courageous. You don't tell a courageous man to be courageous. You tell weak, timid, scared, unsure, be strong. And the walls of Jericho came down. The people prayed and Peter was released from prison. Amazingly, it says in Acts that they prayed for Peter's release And it says that the angel of the Lord released Peter. And it says Peter goes and knocks on the door of the people that were praying for his release. And they shut the door in his face because they don't even believe that God answers prayer. So we pray in faith, but prayer released Peter. In the 16th century, Mary, Queen of Scots, hated the teaching of the scripture. She burned over 280 people at the stake for preaching the Bible. She was a powerful, merciless woman. And yet she said this of John Knox. I fear John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men. Why, Why is prayer powerful? Because when you pray, you pray to a God who is there and who hears. All of redemptive history is written against the backdrop of Exodus 2.24, can make an argument for it, bare minimum. It says the people of God were sighing under their oppression in Egypt. And it says, and God heard them. Everything that follows, the rest of scripture is based on that. What happens? God moves because he hears the prayers and the cries and the sighs of his people. He's a hearing God. I was in Nepal a few years back and we're going to have missionaries from Nepal here in November. I want them to share with you what they do. But I was in Nepal and I remember going to this Buddhist temple. And if you've ever seen one of those Buddhist temples, they have those prayer wheels. They attach a prayer on there and they spin it. It's kind of like, you make a noise. You just hear them all over the place. People are 
praying. And what they believe is that if you spin the wheel, it multiplies your merit before the gods. And then it also multiplies your prayer. And that one spin of the wheel is essentially a hundred monks praying for their entire life. Because people are desperate to be heard by God. I remember just watching it. it there's few times, I'm not an emotional guy, but there's few times where I'll watch a scene and you watch people, even if you go to Israel today, and you watch them shaking, just praying fervently at the wailing wall. And you just go, man, they have no idea, the Buddhists do, that they're praying to a God that died 2,700 years ago. Buddha is buried and in the grave. You know, there's 370 temples literal temples that say they house one of the remaining canine teeth of the Buddha. You know how, how many teeth the average man has? I don't know, but not 370. <laughs> Let me ask you, do you pray? You are your prayer life. Robert Murray McShane, the guy who died when I was my age, he just says, what a man is when he is on his knees, that he is and nothing more. So we ought to pray. So that's, that was really the why we pray, because prayer is a duty. Secondly, it's a privilege. Third, prayer is powerful. Secondly, how do we pray? How do we pray? I find it amazing that Jesus didn't instruct his disciples in exegesis or exorcism. He's not saying, hey, Peter, I want you to work on your intros. Your cadence is a little off and you favor the right side of the stage. He, he teaches them what? How to pray. You know why? Because prayer is that which is most essential for you and it's that which is hardest to do. Because no one can learn praying for you. J.C. Ryle talks about this in his book, A Call to Prayer. He's saying, I can't learn the ABCs for you. You have to do that. And I can't teach you how to pray by proxy. Meaning that you don't, you don't just inherit the gift. There's no one that has the spiritual gift of prayer. It's something you have to do. You have to spend time with God. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And I want to look at this in a moment. But it's not a prayer that Jesus could have ever offered because he's gonna say, forgive us of our debts. Did Jesus ever sin? No, no. If he did, he couldn't be the perfect, spotless, sinless, blameless lamb of God. So we don't need Jesus just to die for us. We need him to live the life we could never live so he could die the death we could never die, right? So this is a model prayer, but it's not a prayer that Jesus would have ever offered necessarily. As some of you know, I do a resource ministry. And this last week I was interviewing a guy I respect, Dr. Joel Beakey. He runs Puritan Reform Seminary. And I was just talking to him about prayer and he brought up the Acts formula of prayer. And I want to walk through that with you, which is, you've maybe heard it, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and how it's supposed to really frame our prayer. I want to look at that just for a moment with you, starting with adoration. So how do we pray? Well, first of all, we adore God. We make great the name of God. Jesus teaches us how to pray in Matthew 6, Verse nine, he says, pray then in this way, our father, pause there. When we go to prayer and we run to the refuge that is God and when we flee to the strength that he supplies, we do not run to an impersonal force, but a loving, tender, and caring, what? Father. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray this way, our father. Sadly, this introduction has become so normal that you've maybe become numb to the reality of it and the preciousness of it. Furthermore, today we teach children that God is father before we ever teach them that he is a just judge and a holy king. Therefore, they value neither. We sing an amazing grace, trust grace that taught my heart to fear. But no one fears God because we only give this one side of the preciousness of it without the other conjoining backdrop. When Jesus says, pray this way, God is our father, it would have rocked their world. Because David had an intimacy with God, but only 15 times in the Old Testament does it ever refer to God as father in any sort of religious sense. It's a very foreign concept. 15 times in the Old Testament. But 240 times in the New Testament, 245, they will refer to God in a religious sense. And a hundred of those times alone are in John's gospel. 
And this is a complete shift of the narrative because they saw God as a consuming fire, which is true, and he is, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So on the day of atonement, the, whole, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and there was such a, a trepidation about approaching God. They would tie a rope around his ankle because if he approached God in an unworthy manner, God would strike him dead. They would hear a bell jingle, and then they would drag him out. That's their view of God. There was a holy day, a holy book, a holy scroll. Everything was holy. You do not mess with God, and you do not just waltz into his throne room. He is a holy king. And yet Jesus says, you get to pray to Father. So against the backdrop of Psalm 46, the rock that you run to, the refuge that protects you, the stronghold that keeps you safe and the strength that you need is also a father that wraps you in his arms. This would have seemed wildly presumptuous to the Jews, and yet here is what Jesus is going to ingrain into his disciples. I mean, this is amazing. In John 20, verse 17, after the resurrection... Jesus tells his disciples, tell the brethren, I am going to my father and to your father. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of a love the father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And then it says, and such we are. Calvin says, prayer is when I climb up in my father's lap and whisper my needs into his ears. Macho men, I want you to understand this. When you pray to God, you do not pray man to man. You pray father to son. You you pray father to daughter. And in case, in case, because God knows the propensity of our own hearts, right? He doesn't need anyone to testify concerning man. It says in John 2.25, He already knows what is within the heart of man. So in case you get too flippant with approaching God as Father, Jesus says, our Father who art in heaven. While we can rush into the throne of our heavenly Father boldly, it says in Hebrews, we do not do so flippantly. Because there are two sides of one coin. You have been granted access to approach the throne, but you need to be reminded that your heavenly father is also a glorious king. Our understanding of prayer's privilege is dependent upon our understanding of our father's power. It's not our father who is next, you know, just next to me. No big deal. It's our father who art in heaven lofty, exalted, upholding the universe by the word of his power. J.I. Packer says in his book on the Lord's Prayer, drab thoughts of God make prayer dull. Drab thoughts, dull prayer, meaning that if you view God only as just this namby-pamby savior or a weak father, of course your prayer life is dull. But when you view father as the one who ordains upholds all things. It'll change your prayer life. If your vision of God is small, then your prayer life will be boring. But when the kids sing and the adults believe, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Sometimes the theology and what they're singing is better than what most of the churches in modern America are singing. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains, his. The valleys, his. The skies are his. Handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do, right? And that's my father, and that is the king. So in prayer, we come to adore him, which means to lift his name high. And then Jesus says, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does this mean? It means that we run and we make great the name of God. If you only run to God as a refuge or only run to God in a state of emergency, it's very revealing about your prayer life as a whole. Here's my cell phone. If I only used my cell phone when I had to dial 911, it wouldn't be very useful to me. And if you only ran to God in a state of emergency, it's very revealing about the way you see him as a whole. So we do run to God as a refuge. We do say, Lord, help. 
but prayer should be much more than that. We need to hollow the name of God. So we adore God. This is what we're looking at. We're looking at adoration. This is where prayer starts. Our Father, thank you that I can call you Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ. I once was estranged from you, an enemy of God, born in sin, a child of wrath, even as the rest. But through the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ, I can now boldly approach the throne and call you Father. God, I'm reminded that even now as I pray, you are not just a small God. You are a king who art in heaven. And so I pray, lift up your name. This is where prayer starts for a child of God. I want God to be great. Lift up your name. Why? Because name is consummate and representative of God, his entirety. Psalm 9 verse 10 says, those who know your name put their trust in you. Jesus says in John 17, 6, I have manifested your name. Meaning what? that he had proclaimed the person, the nature, and the work of God. And so prayer begins here, not with a grocery, li- grocery list of needs or wants, but with an, a desire for the child of God to see their father exalted. So we pray also, your kingdom come, it says, and your will be done. Much of our prayer life is anemic, because we only run to God to tell him what we want or what we need. But when we start with the advancement of the gospel and that God's will would be done and that his kingdom would come, it puts all of our other needs and wants in perspective. Think about it. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. What's the context of that passage? Remember we talked about coffee mug Christianity last week. That's a verse in the middle of Jesus's Magnum opus on anxiety. Do not be worried. Look at the birds of the air. Do the birds select captains of food acquisition? No. Do the lilies robe themselves? No. I clothe them. I feed them. And then he says what? So do not worry. And then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. Because seeking first the kingdom of God lets you know, first of all, the king on the throne is a father who loves you. He's going to meet your every need and all of your needs are put in perspective when you are first and foremost prioritizing the advancement of the kingdom of God and the fulfilling of the will of God. And J.F. Packer says, and if you pray, thy will be done, you also must be willing to say, thy will be done, God, and start with my life. Start with my life. Make me one who obeys your will. Conform me into the image of your perfect son, Psalm 86, 11, unite my heart, God, to fear your name. So we adore God. I saw a lot of babies in here coming in second service. I want you to understand, and I'm thinking about this more and more as my daughter gets older. She's not even two, but I think this is important. Your children's view of God is a direct reflection of the way you adore God in prayer in front of them. They will have a direct, their view of God is totally parallel to the way that you adore God in prayer. If they see you model prayer life and it's, dear God, thank you for this food, amen. Well, God's just a giver but he's not a lofty, exalted, glorious, majestic king worthy of adoration. So when's the last time in front of your kids you've gone, dear Lord, maker of heaven and earth, the heavens declare your glory. The skies proclaim the work of your handiwork. All of creation testifies to your greatness. You uphold kings, you dispose kings. You stop waves, you send lightning. And yet, God, you're mindful of the hairs on the head or the lack thereof. You are a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful God. Small view of God is definitely coming from a small adoration of God in prayer. So we start here. This is where prayer starts. Secondly, confession. We have adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Secondly, we talk about confession. Jesus says, give us, you know, he says this day, but I want you to look at this part in verse 12 and forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now I want you to think with me. In Romans 8.1 it says, if you're a Christian, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? 
Amen. And guess what? That means that you've been justified by God. To be justified by God is to be reckoned righteous before God, meaning that he no longer sees you as if you had lived your life. To be saved means that God now looks at you, not just as forgiven, not just as cleansed, but as if you had lived the perfect righteous life of Jesus Christ. That's he became sin who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that, purpose clause, we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And that justification, which is a legal verdict, can never be reversed. There's a school kind of near me where we were in California, Point Loma Nazarene, beautiful campus, Nazarene theology. Many people in the Nazarene church today believe what? You can lose your salvation. But to be justified by God is a once and for all verdict. And there is no one who has ever lost their salvation because Jesus says, the father has given them to me and no one will snatch them out of my hand. But while our justification is final, we confess our sins. Maybe you're wondering, why would I confess my sins if I know God has already forgiven me judiciously or judicially? And it's because if you're a child of God, you feel the prick of your conscience when you have grieved and fractured the fellowship that you have with your heavenly father. That's why, that's why David in Psalm 51 is saying, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Meaning he's not saying, give me back my salvation. He's saying, God, I've sinned. I've murdered Uriah. I've had adult, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And now what's been robbed from me is the joy of intimacy. So he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I'm going to teach sinners your ways. So we lose this dynamic of intimacy with God when we choose to sin. And so what we do is we confess our sins to God specifically. We say, Father, I've disobeyed you in these ways. Forgive me. And what's the promise? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from, what's that next word? All unrighteousness. How much? All unrighteousness. So that's the promise. And then what's the result of confession? Right? Well, it's Psalm 130, verse four. This is an amazing verse. I could get stuck here for a while. We're delivering lunch. Psalm 130, verse four, with you there is forgiveness of sins so that you may be, we would think worshiped. It's with you there is forgiveness of sins so that you may be feared. Not fear in a servile way before your tortures, but fear as in a filial way, the awe of God. And so there's a vicious cycle in prayer. You adore God, you confess your sins, and then you thank God that the sin you confess, he has forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It might sound humble to doubt that God has forgiven you of your sins, but it's incredibly prideful because you're failing to believe what God has explicitly said to be true. And when you doubt that God has forgiven you, you put your sin center stage instead of the glory of God as the forgiver. And so you trust that Jesus, because of his sacrifice, God has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. And when you confess that, then you go, God, and I thank you that through the finished work of Jesus Christ, my sin has been paid for. And so it creates this cycle where prayer begins, it ends in the middle. Everything is gratitude. Not give me, give me, give me, give me, but God, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are, you are, you are, you are. And so we adore God. We make confession to God, and we thank him for that forgiveness. And so then third, we come to thanksgiving. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, prayer and praise in the Bible are identical twins. One of the reasons we worry so much as a church and as a people is because we are so ungrateful. We don't thank God enough. And because our lives are deficient on praise, they're deficient on peace. But gratitude is the garment of prayer We don't just thank God for when he answers our prayers. We thank God in the first place that he answers our prayers and that he is the sovereign one who hears us. I had Justin read Psalm 100 because it characterizes the very act and mentality of when we approach God. We don't walk out of his gates with thanksgiving when we get what we want. We enter into his gates with thanksgiving. And if we don't come thankfully, we will come greedily. 
Tozer says this, prayer among evangelical Christians is always in danger of degenerating into a glorified gold rush. It's amazing that Jesus healed 10 Samaritan lepers. How many came back to say thank you? One. 10 got what they wanted, but only one wanted to know the Savior. So we thank God. Much could be said here on thankfulness. But this is Christianity 101. If you miss this, you've missed the first rung of the ladder. There is no such thing as a Christian pessimist. Every Christian has a spiritual birthmark. And if you're a Christian and you want to indicate how much intimacy you have with God, you ask yourself, how thankful am I? Have you experienced pain? The Christian life is full of pain. So God does not tell us to deny our sorrow, but we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Christian people are thankful people. Stonebridge Bible Church ought to be the most thankful, thankful, thankful church. So we adore God. We make confession. We thanksgiving, and then we come to supplication. Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And this is an expression of our daily dependence upon God. But sadly, many in our country and many in our culture don't ever pray this prayer because we depend on ourselves. We talked about this last week that if it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, and it's so much harder even for that rich man to depend on God and to run to him as a refuge. And here we, we must be reminded that when God blesses us in any way that doesn't preclude us from falling on our faces and saying, God, I'm fully dependent upon you today. He's not our last resort. He's our first response. Furthermore, our life is so fragile. The economy can tank. Global peace can dissipate. Your scholarship can be gone. Why? Because your ACL can tear. Or your Achilles. As with me. I was never making it anywhere, let's be honest. God gave the Israelites manna one day at a time. You know why? So that every single day they would come to God in dependence and every single day he would meet their needs and it would cultivate a heart of gratitude and cultivate an understanding. Listen, the only reason you're alive right now is because God is giving you breath. God doesn't need to take your life. He just has to stop giving it because in him, Acts 17, we move and breathe and have our being. You breathe in, you breathe out, gift from God. So we ask him to meet our needs. I want you to understand, church family, that when you worry about tomorrow, we are living in tomorrow today, but God has only promised to give you strength one day at a time. When we worry or get anxious about the future, we are doubting the character of our heavenly father. Doubt is the opposite of dependence. It is defiance. When you worry, it is a defamation against the character of God. When you worry, you are saying, our father, you're not in heaven. You're not sovereign. You're not wise. You're not loving. This is why Jesus says, don't you know who your father is? Your father's not Joe Schmo. Your father is the lofty, exalted, sovereign, wise, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent king. We make supplication of God, though, because even though he's the king, he's interested in the nuts and bolts of our lives because he's a tender, loving father. We make requests of God because we live in a world of trouble and the Bible doesn't say to deny trouble. It says to roll all of our trouble onto a God who hears and who cares. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares on God. Why? Because he cares for you. You already have someone that cares for all your needs. You don't need to care as well. And the God who cares for you, I think it's Augustine that says, 
God is more anxious about you than we are about ourselves. He's concerned about you. And so when we make supplication of God, we're not coercing God and bending his arm and trying to pry a reluctant God. We are approaching a father who deeply cares. The other day, Lily wanted me to take her to the Wawa at the YMCA. She wants to go in the pool and she'll stand on my shoes and she'll put up her hands and I have to walk like this. Wawa, 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 Dad, Dad, Wawa. Does that annoy me? <laughs> no. I love it. I love it. Because fathers that love their children love to hear from their children. And Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your perfect heavenly father. I'm an imperfect guy full of sin. And even I love to love my children. Right? I mean, there's nothing better. Side note, I just can't believe people told us to like wait to have kids. This is the greatest thing in the world. And Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more, how much more the perfect king? Just in this regard and supplication, we need to name other names before God. One of the fascinating things about Paul when he prays, in Romans he mentions 30 individual names. Paul was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was stoned, he was left for dead multiple times and imprisoned for years. And the guy that wrote half of the New Testament never once asked to be released from prison. You know what he's praying for? The health of his friends and that their heart would be united in Christ and that they would come to know the fullness of God. We pray for our needs, but godly prayer is praying for the needs of those around us, that they would see Christ more clearly. Paul says, I, I'm not asking to be released from prison. He goes, he's saying, actually, through my imprisonment, the gospel has been made known to the whole palace guard. Praise God. I write you in my chains. Remember me and remember that even in my chains, the gospel advances. God's kingdom is coming. Name other names. J.C. Ryle says, they love me best who love me in their prayers. This is convicting for me. But if you love your spouse, if you love your children, if you love the people of God here at Stonebridge Bible Church, God hears their names in your prayers. When should we pray now? talked about adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Now let's ask the question, when should we pray? 2 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. Watch this. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do you want to know God's will for your life, boys and girls? It's very easy. It's that you would pray without ceasing, that you would in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's to live your life with a God consciousness. You cannot be conscious of God's nearness if you are not a ceaseless prayer. That's why Paul says in Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer. That's why Jesus says in Luke 18, verse 1, men ought always to pray. And we need to also pray in our prayers. The Puritan used to talk about this a lot. Pray until you pray. Pray until you pray. Pray until you pray. Meaning that you need to get past the empty ritualism of just this perfunctory prayer and actually begin to engage in communion with God. If someone told me they walked every day and they said, oh, really, how far do you walk? Mm, about 12 steps. You're like, hey, that's not, that's not exercise, brother. And if we said you pray every day, how long do you pray? Well, I thank God for this food. Thank you for this day. Amen. It takes, you have to get into fellowship with God, which requires more than a high and by. You do pray without ceasing. It is throughout the day. Lord, help me. Lord, thank you for this. Lord, thank you for this. And those are moment by moment, God conscious prayers. But you have to, in order to experience communion with God, in order for you to say, I actually have a personal relationship with you. I remember just even students that give their testimony when I was working at Hume Lake, they say, yeah, they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What does that even mean? How often or how, how many people in your life would say, he, when he prays, he prays. 
it's possible to pray with formalism and platitudes without ever experiencing intimacy with God in your prayer. Listen, you can't live a single moment of faithfulness to Jesus Christ in your own strength. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. What I think we think he means is that without Jesus Christ, we're not operating on all cylinders. But Jesus says, even the best of the best, the creme de la creme, can do nothing apart from me. And if the incarnate Son of God made prayer his priority, how much more should we? Maybe just ask a couple questions. What about unanswered prayer? Well, a couple things. Number one, God hears the prayer of the upright, he says. You cannot walk in disobedience and expect God to answer your prayers. Because he hears the call of those who are righteous. Tozer says again, all things being equal, our prayers are only as powerful as our lives. In the long haul, we pray only as well as we live. First Samuel fifteen twenty two: to obey is better than to sacrifice. Here's God speaking in Jeremiah 2. They have turned their back on me. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. And I will not listen, says the Lord. You need to walk in obedience. Obviously, we need prayer to walk in obedience. But we can't be rejecting and turning our face on God and then expect him to do our beck and call as we run from him. Secondly, we might ask with the wrong motives. James 4.3 says, you ask with the wrong motives. God bless my company, not so that you can bless the people of God, but so that you can get and get and get. God's not a rigged slot machine. So check your motives. Is ambition wrong? No. Work hard. Make money. But what's your motive? Third, we often don't realize that we are the answer to our own prayers. We pray for revival. We pray um, that God would give us an opportunity to share the gospel. Whatever it be, for an unsaved family or a friend or relative not knowing that God uses human instruments to accomplish his divine means. You are the answer to many of your prayers. God save them. Open your mouth and tell them Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only life. You pray for a revival. Do a great work in my neighborhood. It starts with you knocking on the next door neighbor's door. And obviously we need God's strength to do this. But prayer is not an excuse for our own lack of diligence and obedience. We can't say, God, make me holy, and then watch shows every night, and then wake up late the next morning and neglect his word. God gives us means to accomplish his ends, and you are in some ways the answer to some of your prayers. Furthermore, Thomas Brooks says, God's delays are not his denials. When it seems like God has not answered our prayer, it's not necessarily because he's denied our request. It's because he's delayed in our request. Paul says he prays three times, and I think Paul was a good prayer, whatever that means. He says, I asked three times that the Lord would remove the thorn of my flesh, and three times God says no, and then says, my grace is sufficient for you. Here's the reality. If Paul experienced pain and then went to God and said, take this away, and God went, sure, done, Paul. Paul would have never learned to say, God's grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in my weakness. And in the theater of my impotence, there God's glory and power shines. God's delays are not his denials. William Carey prayed eight years for a convert and didn't see one until the ninth year. Furthermore, as we talk about unanswered prayers, we must also realize that unanswered prayers are not our biggest problem. What is? You have not because you ask not. The biggest problem in your life is not unanswered prayers. It's unoffered prayers. I love the hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. 
What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials or temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. What are the results of being a praying man, a praying woman, a praying teen, a praying nine-year-old? I always find it interesting. You never think David was a teenager out there writing some of the Psalms. David says in Psalm 34, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. If you're a praying man, a praying woman, you are a blessed man. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him? And remember, what is taking refuge in God? It is running through the gates of that refuge in prayer. You can say yes and amen to things all day long, but at Stonebridge Bible Church, we need to be a church that says, what does that even mean? And what that means is you run to the refuge of God in prayer. Secondly, not only will your life be blessed, you will be holy. J.C. Ryle in his book says, prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer. Do you have a besetting sin? Run to God as a refuge in prayer. Soak your soul in the scripture and bleed out your heart to God because prayer is the shield that blocks the darts of the devil. Take up the shield of faith. Pray and sing with the hymn writer, Annie Hawk. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art what? Nigh. Wait, I thought God was always near. He is always near, but his nearness is only sensed by those who live their life with a God consciousness as they pray without ceasing. What else happens if you're a prayer? God will give you courage. There's a, I think I had 12 and I condensed it because I didn't want to make this another week, but God will give you courage. You live in a spineless, compromised world. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. He says in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. How is this possible to be strong? We must put on the armor of God. And it says that we must wear the shield of faith. If you don't go and do this world with a shield, you are toast. Because H.P. Charles says, the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. This is a war, put on your armor and then Paul concludes, this is fascinating. I gotta, I gotta read this real quick. It's fascinating to me. This guy has written half of your New Testament. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Verse 17, Ephesians 6, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Four times he uses the word all. He's just saying also, by the way, put on the armor of God. And he's still in the same vein. He goes, and then pray always, pray always, pray always. Put on the armor of God means that you're a prayer. In Acts 4, Peter and John are in prison for their boldness. They're released from prison. And then it says they gather the people of God. And I love this in Acts 4, 29. It says, now, Lord, consider the threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They were just in prison for their boldness. And then it says, and after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Come on. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They're in prison for their boldness. They get out of prison, say, everybody... Come here, huddle, huddle, huddle. Pray for more boldness. The place is shaken. And then they turn the world upside down. You want to live for God in a hostile world? Well, a steel spine is dependent upon having bruised knees. Standing tall for God means you must first bow down, kneel down in prayer. I often read biographies and I wonder, why did God move so powerfully in the preaching of a Wesley or Whitfield or a Jonathan Edwards? Their sermons are so in, you know, very similar to a lot of the things you would hear today in biblical environments because I would say that they were wrestlers at the throne of grace. They understood something that you also must grasp. You cannot have an intimate, real relationship with anybody you talk to a few minutes a day. 
You can't. Now, what gives us confidence in prayer? And this is precious. Maybe you say, I I don't pray good. Here's the reality. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus Christ, the one who appears to Moses at the burning bush, the one, the angel of the Lord, he, he commands angels. I mean, this is the one who is and who was and who is to come. This Jesus Christ, Hebrews 7.25, ever lives to make intercession for imperfect people who offer imperfect prayers. Jesus is praying for you right now. And do you know what? It's not a chore to him. He ever lives to make intercession for his people. He's praying for you right now. He's praying for you right now. He's praying for you right now. We don't know how to pray. We mumble and we bumble and we lisp and we stammer and we pretend in posture. And then it says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession. And it says in Romans 8 that the spirit of God intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. You don't go before God polished. You go as someone who doesn't even know to pray and then you say, God, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, take my mumbling, jumbling, garbage, lisping, stammering tongue and make it, make it acceptable to the Father because of the blood of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God which has sealed my inheritance and assures me of the love of God. And so, Lord, even when I doubt your prayer, would you please not only intercede, but Romans 5, 5, pour out the love of God into my heart so that when I'm praying, I'm praying not to an indifferent judge, but a loving Father. One writer says, the banknote without a signature at the bottom is nothing but a worthless piece of paper. But the signature confers all of the value. You have a signature on every one of your prayers, and it's signed in blood. Bought by Jesus Christ. I'm out of time. But one last thing. There's not a single personal pronoun in the model prayer that Jesus instructs his people to pray. Our Father, how old be your name? Heart in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. There's six petitions in that model prayer and there's not a single personal pronoun. You know why? Because when Jesus teaches you to pray and you to pray, he's assuming you are doing it amongst the body of Christ. At Stonebridge Bible Church, we pray together. When I was a kid, we used to do prayer meetings on Wednesday, Sunday evenings, prayer. But we live in a world of programs. Go to the church with the greatest program. A biblical church is the church that values prayer. If we were going to throw a prayer meeting, hypothetically, it would be two dozen people that are largely retired. Because we don't make a a priority of it. But Jesus wants you to know when you pray, you don't just pray in your closet. You pray in the family of God, for the family of God, because you are sons and daughters of God. And when you pray, you're not only uniting your heart to your father, you're uniting your heart to your siblings. Our church's unity is only as strong as our prayer together and collectively. And with that in mind, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're looking at different passages of scripture and not in our typical format today. But Lord, there's a great theme here in the truth. Lord, we can only run to you as our refuge and as our strength and as an ever-present help if we live ever-presently before the throne to pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks. Lord, I pray that our prayers first and foremost would be 
adoration. God, you are a great God. The heavens declare your glory. But the most glorious thing about who you are and what you've done is that you sent your son to die, Ephesians 1 says, to the praise of the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ. Your glory is most exhibited not in Mount Everest or in the Northern Lights, but in a teacher from Nazareth who died for sinners. Lord, we also confess that we are a sinful people. Lord, we have things in our life that no one knows about but you. So Lord, we confess our sin. We're thankful that you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And Lord, we just want to be a people of thanksgiving. Lord, you're a good God. You're a son and shield. No good thing does the Lord withhold from them who walk uprightly. And God, we also just make our requests made known to you and we're thankful that you are not just interested in the big picture, but in the nuts and bolts of our lives because you're a loving father. All of our needs, all of our troubles have a little concern, a minor thing. Well, anything minor in our life is major to our father. But Lord, I pray that we would keep it in perspective with your kingdom and your righteousness and all these other things can be put in perspective. Not that we don't bring them up, but because we see them in the right place. God, we just, we're thankful for your word. We could never exhaust it. Even this subject, many weeks could be spent on. And so, Lord, we thank you for what we know to be true, that our imperfect prayers are made perfect because of Jesus Christ, who ever lives to make intercession for us, and the Holy Spirit, who intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep for words, carries it to the Father. And so we pray to a triune God. Father, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for sealing our inheritance and for conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Do so even more. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen.